Welcome everybody to Monday Night Live. Um, tonight's guest is Heather Wright, who has an amazing CV. She's a award-winning professional speaker, an author, and um, a masterclass leader. And she's worked with all sorts of people, coaching and mentoring. And we're going to find out all about that now. Heather, welcome. And Heather, to start off with, I'm really curious. Uh, when you were 19, you got held up by a gun, a gunman on holiday. We don't even know where that is yet, but I'm looking forward to learning where it was. And yet he paid for your taxi home. Tell us about that, Heather. Well, you know, if ever you were, if ever you had someone who was really, really annoying and just talked a lot, I think really he uh, he got to the point where he either paid for my taxi home or put the gun in his own mouth. I'm not quite sure what happened. I just talked more out of the situation. So yeah, it was it was an interesting one. I was in Spain at the time, uh, and um, I I don't really need to express what how frightened I was at the time. Um, but it is interesting if you just happen to say the right thing. I'm not suggesting what I particularly said to him will always work in that situation. But remembering that at this point, I was a brown belt in my first martial art. So uh, I hadn't even got my first black belt. He had already told me that he was a special police man. So uh, I think that was why he had the gun, I suppose. He, uh, it was his, his works weapon part time. Uh, and he pulled it on me um, and was trying to persuade me. Do you remember that advert? What would you do to give someone your last Rolo for the sweets? I think that he was after my last Rolo or something like that. Anyway, let's just say I wasn't prepared to give him whatever it was he wanted. And he pulled a gun on me. And um, it may sound a little bit pathetic now, but I, I got really, really angry. I was frightened, but what I also got was really angry. And inside my head, there was this voice that just said, I will not be a victim. I will not be a victim. And so I basically told him that and said, now, I'm, this is pathetic. You've been telling me what a big guy you are all night. If this is the only way you can get what you want, then this is particularly pathetic. Now put it away and call me a taxi. And... Um, <laughs> That's what he did. Now, like I say, I'm not convinced it would work for every serial killer or whatever that's out there, but it happened to work for me. And uh, yep, he called me a taxi. He paid for my taxi back to my hotel, at which point I collapsed in tears where my best friend was waiting for me. <laughs> I can't believe I got away. So yeah, it was a bit scary, really. Wow. And that's what got you interested in psychology, you were telling That's me. right. That's right. My, um, I had friends who had had some dodgy situation. I mean, apart from anything else, I was in a, a, it was a dumb situation I was in and I had made many wrong calls. I have to admit that I'd made wrong calls all the way along and I hadn't looked after my own personal safety. I was very naive at the age of 19. It was the first time I'd been abroad without my parents. It was actually the first time I'd ever been on a plane. That's how naive I was at the time. Um, and I'd made many wrong calls, but I had some friends who'd got themselves into some dodgy situations and they hadn't got away. And I started looking at that point into what is it that makes somebody like me get angry instead of, I was frightened, but I was also angry instead of actually my best friend who was better than me at the martial arts, stronger than me. She was physically very fit. She'd, she was an athlete and yet she had given in to a couple of I won't go into her story. Um, and I kind of wanted to look at what the difference was with what I perceived to be a victim mentality versus a don't you dare do this to me. And so that got me interested in psychology. And I'd been a bit lost uh, in what was I going to do with my life at that point. I'd applied to go to drama school. I'd got into drama school. 
And then unfortunately, my father had said, uh, you're not going to go if you go to drama school. My father, my brother was at the Royal Ballet School, the top ballet school in the world. And he said, if you're going to drama school, you are going to the top one in the world or none at all. So uh, and there really isn't a top drama school. I mean, he was thinking about Raj and things like that. And so he wouldn't let me go. And I was I was a bit lost. And when I saw this and when I started to get into psychology, I became fascinated with behavior. Why do people do what they do? Why do some people, why was, I, why was I lucky enough, if you like, to get away from that situation? And why are other people not? And so it just sparked my interest. And then the more I looked at psychology, the more fascinated I became with it. And what studying of psychology have you done? Have you done the NLP, emotional intelligence, CBT? I've done lots of different things. So I'm a behavioral analyst. I've studied basic psychology and, and I've studied a lot of the brain. I spent time uh, with doctors and neurosurgeons studying the brain. I have, I have looked at NLP. I have not got any qualifications in NLP. I've actually, I've sort of avoided that partly because I was into the neuroscience. And I must confess, we're talking about when I got into this in 1990s, uh, the, the, the absolute neuroscience was quite a new study. So when I stood in front of people and started actually explaining how the brain makes its connections, there was a lot of people going, oh, I've never seen this before. But of course, now, you know, we've, we've all got, many of us have mutual friends, someone like Dr. Linda Shaw, who absolutely explains the brain brilliantly and studied it for many, many years and PhDs and all sorts. Um, whereas in 1996, when I kind of explained it to people and I, one of the reasons I, I do it is because I explain it really simply because that's the way I understand it. So when I speak to the doctors in the hospitals who talk to me about it, they often give me quite complex stuff and I kind of go, oh, no, I, if you're in, in business, you don't need that complexity. You want a model that works so you understand it. So I'll change it to something really simple because that's the way my brain works and, and then give it back to the doctor, say, tell, check that I'm not lying. Please tell me that I'm making sense that I'm and they go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I said, so in organizations and in business, we don't we're not doing brain surgery. We don't actually want to know all of the ins and outs, but we do want to know how you can reprogram your brain and how you can tweak it and, and just become the best you can be. Uh, because let's face it, we're really, really good with many of our other muscles, if you like, and our other organs. Uh, many of us are quite poor with the brain. So that's that's kind of what I'm into. So I'll, I'll study anything that will give me more on that no brilliant and a lot of people on here are very interested in that as well and we've had linda shaw on about a year ago so if anyone wants to look at that interview it was uh, about may or june last year so that's on uh, that's on our youtube channel so let's talk about elite athletes because we've got a number of elite athletes on here like will kentish godfrey lancashire nigel kirby just to name a few what do you do with elite athletes let's say i was an elite athlete but i was beginning to lose the plot a bit i was a cricket <laughs> i was a cricketer i got out for four ducks on a row uh, what would you do with me do you know what the stuff i do in business is the same as i would do when i deal with elite athletes and i spend more time with with business but when we do deal with elite athletes it's the same thing i exactly explain exactly how the brain and the body work together so how our psychology and our physiology work together. And we talk about programming the brain. But the other thing that's really, really important, and it was interesting because I was with you last week when we had the Royal Marine on. Um, and my son went into the Marines when he left school. Um, and I remember getting the phone calls. He didn't really go into a lot of how hard the training was, but I got that phone call from a 19 year old young man who was being absolutely blitzed in the Marines 
But what they do in the Marines is they reprogram the body and the mind, but they have people, they have at least half a dozen strong, burly, top Marines constantly drilling the skill, drilling the skill, drilling the skill. So you can take a young 16, 17, 18 year old man and, and prepare that young man for war over eight months, okay, drilling that skill and em embedding habits. And that's exactly what we do when we work with sports people and organizations. The difference, of course, is you're not preparing them for war and you've got longer than eight months. You know, you're not taking a young, naive six, 16 year old who has never even done their washing to get them to go out to war. But the idea is to really understand how to program the brain for success. And that includes mindset and it includes the, you know, all of that optimism and learned optimism. But what it also includes in there is the physicality of drilling that skill and repetition and consistency. And uh, one of the reasons I'm into that is because I've, I've felt when I started getting into this, that there were a lot of people reducing what we called positive thinking to just visualize it and it'll all happen to you. And I'm sure everybody on here has heard that message and probably gone, ah, you know, when you really get into it, you realize there's more to it than that absolutely more to it. And you have to really understand the triggers. You have to understand the rewards that happen in the brain. And you have to understand the intervention that's necessary to create a habit loop that will, that will embed consistency. And that's so when we deal with sports people, they, they kind of get that with the physicality, but they haven't got it yet with the mentality. So, and it's exactly the same process. It's just the mentality. The difference is where, uh, you would never go onto a sports field and practice doing something wrong. You wouldn't, not, you wouldn't deliberately go in as a basketball player and deliberately miss the baskets. Whereas mentally, our brains can go all over the place. And on a daily basis, we not only do things right, but we regularly practice without consciously doing it. We practice doing things wrong. So we actually create connections in the brain that work against us regularly. We have to have that discipline 24 seven, which pulls us back from that and that's where the emotional intelligence comes in because we'd quite like to have a wallow we'd quite like to have a bit of a woe is me wine uh, but actually every time we do that we're practicing doing something wrong so um for the um for the benefit of our american audience i said i got four ducks at cricket they'll have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> good thing you hit it with your bat yeah. You're chasing ducks around the field. <laughs> Which is getting out first ball. I don't know what you call that in baseball, but um, um, so mentally I've, I've, you know, I'm, you know, you must deal with superstars and suddenly they lose it. For some reason they lose it. And this happens in all sport, doesn't it? And you, no one can figure out why they've lost it. They get lots of flack in the press and on the TV interviews, and it's a total nightmare. And they're very close to a mental breakdown. And I know that there's yeah. all sorts of psychologists in. Well, the, the first sports person I dealt with was a golfer called Richard Boxall. And I don't know if many of you have heard of Richard Boxall. He was the first sports person I dealt with. And I'd never played golf in my life. I had to not call it a stick and, you know, oh, look, you're in amongst the flowers. No, no, the rough and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and Richard Boxall had been winning the Open one year. I think he was at Southport at the time. Uh, and he was winning the Open. And as he swung, he got a spiral fracture of his leg. And it was, a, it was a real mess, an absolute mess. And it put him out of play for well over a year. 
but the issue he had many many issues with that he had no health insurance he had nothing so he earned nothing for that time and he sat at home and he just went over and over and over and over and over and um his uh, manager um who uh, introduced us to him and a few of other um golfers uh, asked me to work with him and I was working with him on that and it was absolutely fascinating because I spent a lot of time talking about that and I kept working on this psychology of how he could get back and I could see the way he could get his mindset back and I knew he had the talent but what was also interesting was that whenever we had a break he would start asking me about how I got into presenting and he would start asking me about all of the other stuff I do training presenting speaking at conferences and even asked about some of the tv work I'd done uh, and I kept going, right, we'll talk about this in the break, but when we get back to what we're doing, we must talk about golf, we must talk about golf. And he never really quite got any better at golf. I'm going to admit, you shouldn't come on these things and talk about your failures, should you? But anyway, uh, and he never actually got any better at golf. But what was interesting is, does anyone know what he's doing now? No, I thought maybe he was an amateur golfer or uh, no. No, no, uh, he's a presenter. Wow. So he commentates interestingly and what i discovered was no matter how much i give someone with regard to how they can get better at the sport you actually have to understand whether or not they want to and during that 18 months he'd had off as uh, he actually had decided that he really wanted to commentate so although i was there trying to help him at golf what i ended up doing was i ended up helping him change his career completely and he became a commentator so you can spend all your time, you know, the old, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But that was a real learning point for me. So now when I actually start working with somebody, I'd spend a lot of time really delving into why they want to do what they do and if they really want to do it first, because that motivation is important, isn't it? Motivation is important. But then I can give them the tools that say, OK, we've got the motivation sorted out. Now I can give you the tools so that you can reprogram your brain. Yeah, you need to be able to, you need to want to do it 100% or 110%, don't you? And we all go through changes in our lives at different stages as well. And obviously he'd gone through one of those. So how do yeah, you bring, exactly. how do you bring this cricketer back from the precipice? Cricket's a funny game. It's a bit like golf, isn't it? It's a bit, bit less of a team game, perhaps, than uh, football or rugby. And uh, how do you bring that person back that... You know, it's been sitting in the pavilion in a test match and just come out for no runs at all. First ball. What do you what, well, it, how do you start? Well, you, you've got to start by asking the right questions, of course. First of all, it's about what they want and then it's about what they believe. And then it's actually about their physicality as well. So there's a certain amount that is required. So I'll explain to them exactly how the brain works. And I'll explain to them that they can change. And one of the thing, one of the things that happens when you explain to everybody about how the brain works is it gives them a spark. It gives them a desire to change. It's a little bit like I suppose we all get used sometimes to not being very good at stuff. Uh, you know, as we're growing up, we get used to it. But what we do is we end up sort of shelving it. Go well, I can't change that, so I'll just get used to it. And I think the problem is people get used. Sometimes they get used to not being very good. And so they almost give up on it. When you start to explain to people how they can change and how they can reprogram their brain, it renews their motivation, it renews their aspiration, the stuff they didn't really want to dream of previously, because if you dream of it and you don't achieve it, surely that's even worse for you. So once you start to tell them how they can change in terms of reprogramming the brain, and what I don't do is suddenly promise somebody that if you dream it, you can achieve it. 
because actually when it comes to the physicality of sport, they may never do. I mean, if you ever watch something like the Olympics and you uh, people love when they're in, in our game, if you like, to talk to tell you the story of the gold medalist who didn't have any shoes and all of that. And they tell you that story. But what they don't tell you is about the hundreds who did exactly the same sort of stuff and didn't even make it to the Olympics. And so we start, we have to get into that a little bit and say, okay, well, the physicality of, yes, you need some skill. You need some skill. You don't have to be the best. If you, if you are pretty skilled, but you have the right mentality, you can achieve more than the person who's physically the best, but doesn't have the mentality. But actually there's still a certain amount that says, let's just talk about how the brain works. Let's talk about your belief systems. Let's get you really, really happy and comfortable with who you are and where you're going. And we'll get you to the peak of what you can do whatever that might be. And so we start and we work on both the psychology of that and we work on the physicality of habit change. But we have to, uh, uh, it's, it's a conversation. I don't give them a magic pill because while we're doing it, we might discover something. We might discover that they have a particular trigger that sets them off. Does that make sense? Sport can be quite a toxic environment. Whenever I've worked in sport, there can be, it, can, it can be, loads of people would love to be a professional sports person, but it can be massively toxic the amount of nicknames sports people are given based on mistakes they made i met i met a um a golfer um sorry a cricketer whose nickname in the sport was tin hands because the ball always bounced out of his hands as though they were made of tin his mates gave him that nickname and every time he went out they called him tin hands imagine that reminder all of the time i met a footballer whose nickname was bambi because whenever he got the ball, he fell over. Okay, I, I, and I've met, there's loads more. Unfortunately, some I can't tell you because they're, they're really not very polite. Oh, and, and an ice skater whose nickname was Frosty Bum. <laughs> because she always fell over when she was doing a particular move. Now, if you're about to skate out onto the ice for the performance of your lifetime and your mate, your best mate, pats you on the shoulder and says, good luck, Frosty Bum. That's going to trigger a picture, a video in your head of you falling and falling and falling. And of course, that's going to manifest itself in your performance. So we have to look at those triggers. We have to look at those loops because we have a we have a trigger. We have a habit and then we have a particular reward, whatever that reward is. Usually it's either moving towards pleasure away from pain. And we have to find out what those are. It's a massive thing, triggers and anchors in psychology and in, in, in neurolinguistics. Do you just want, and particularly in business as well, and in life and when we wake up in the morning, do you just want us for the last two minutes of part one, just explain that to everybody in words of one syllable that even I would understand? Uh, okay, what, that the habit loops type of thing? Habit loops and triggers and anchors, just simply because people listening to this and watching this on YouTube will have them. And often we don't know we've got them. We don't know what yeah. they're doing to us. Okay, the, the two minute version. All right then, <clears throat> here Go goes then. All right then, something happens to us. We start to develop from a very young age, we start to develop triggers. We start to develop associations. When something happens, there's a trigger. I refer to that as the sliding doors moment for anybody who's ever seen the film Sliding Doors. I'm just looking to see, yeah, I'm getting a few nods. If you haven't seen the film, this won't spoil it for you and it's still on Netflix. Uh, it's a 1990s film. But the, the lady who's in the film, she loses her job. This is, this is longer than two minutes. She's racing down the stairs to catch the tube uh, and 
she somebody get a, a small child gets in her way and in that split second she either catches goes through the sliding doors or doesn't go through the sliding doors and the film splits into two timelines okay uh, one where she caught the train and one where she didn't and her life is very very different a trigger is a moment when you could either do the thing you're used to doing or you could do something different and what we've what we've normally done by habit is we've done the one thing by repetition. So the trigger starts it. And we have to know what those triggers are because that's the moment we want the intervention to start to do the new thing. Then we go through the habit. The biggest challenge is working out what the psychological reward is for that habit, because every habit we have has a psychological reward. Maybe I could talk about that in part two, because it's definitely longer than two minutes. And it's when you start to work out what that reward is you really start to work out what's going on in your head. Fantastic, Heather. Uh, thanks for joining us in part, part one. Please join us again in part two. Heather Wright, uh, speaker, trainer and author.